On board a very cold ship, you could see something in the distance. A scout standing on the top of a tall timber on the ship would shout, Whale off! A small rowboat would be dispatched from the main vessel to seek out the large mammal. Someone would hurl a double-flued metal harpoon with a tensile strength of 6,000 pounds into the belly of a gray whale, but out there in the Atlantic must have looked like a horrid monster splashing around the mix of water, foam, blood. Generally, the harpoon would be launched by hand, but not always. At the time of the beginning of the American Revolution, the harpoon gun was beginning to replace the traditional way, but not always. Once harpoon, the animal needed to be brought in, a dangerous practice which, done wrong, could sink the ship. But if the animal was properly subdued, then it would be foisted upon one of the 80-ton ships that left from Massachusetts, where the crew would immediately start treating it before it got to port, cutting it up into tiny pieces, securing the valuable whale oil. Whaling in Massachusetts had gone on since the 1670s and at the time of the signing of the Declaration was one of the hot industries in this state. It first started when a whale showed up on a Nantucket shore. And at first, that was the practice. Take whatever whales came into the shore and use its valuable parts. But then, whales came to the bay were targeted, and boats went out a little bit, and eventually ships went out farther and farther. Indeed, by the time that the last signer of the Declaration died, whalers from Massachusetts were starting to go out all the way to the Pacific. This is around the time of the Revolution, the energy center of America. Towns like Nantucket and Bedford relied on whaling for substance and prosperity. They were seeking the oil, whale, or sperm oil for lamps. In some cases, for those willing to try, the meat that tasted something like veal, which, with a full whale, could be butchered into a thousand steaks. Not everyone was willing to eat it, though, and it never became a staple. But whale oil burned cleanly and brightly and was a superior lubricant. Colonial exports of candles to England became a profitable business. The other side of it is that whales, even in the 1700s, Smart animals started to catch on that maybe it was a little dangerous to get too close to shore, and they would keep out of the ocean and go to the Arctic areas, forcing the boats to go farther and farther to get them. Thus, American boats would compete with English and Norwegian as well as others. Thus, when one of the signers of the Declaration went on a whaling voyage, Robert Treat Paint was forced to go out to Greenland. He traveled around what would have been the world at the time, the mostly Atlantic world of the signers. He went to the Azores Island, the Spanish mainland, Portugal, in search of trading riches and a career as a merchant. This was one of Robert Treat Payne's many attempted professions, a whaler, a merchant. He dropped it, though, and decided to trade the harpoon for the pen and seek his success as a member of the Massachusetts Bar. He would end up trying a famous case and losing to another signer. Just like some of the rich landed men of Virginia, the Lees, the Randolphs, Treat lent huge credibility to the independence movement by signing his family name. The Payne and Treat families both had a reputation. Payne dated all the way back to the Mainflower, and the Treat family included a royal governor. Robert Treat Payne was a lawyer, politician. During the French and Indian War, he served as a military chaplain. His father 
was the Reverend Thomas Paine was a pastor of Franklin Road Baptist Church in Weymouth, Massachusetts, but moved his family to Boston in 1730 and became a merchant there. Robert Treat Paine was one of the committed patriots of Boston, along with Samuel Quincy. Treat Payne conducted the prosecution of Captain Thomas Preston and his British soldiers following the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770. He argued for the conviction of the British soldiers and faced off with another signer, John Adams. Yet as a lawyer, Robert Treat Payne was clear to establish to the jury that Massachusetts, as a colony in what would be a future part of the United States, would uphold a responsible judicial system. If, he said, in the examination of this cause for evidence is not sufficient to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt of the guilt of all or any of the prisoners, by the benignity or reason of the law, you will acquit them. The law will be satisfied in the fairness and impartiality of their trial. Treat Payne was popular and associated with the movement for American rights in Boston, he represented Massachusetts at the Continental Congress from 1774 through 1778 in time for the signing, and in arguing for the Declaration, he invoked the Pilgrims. The love of liberty and the oppressions of those in power first induced the Pilgrim Fathers to plant their standard on the granite shores of New England. They were not a band of visionary, unprincipled speculators, but a band of intelligent, virtuous, pious, patriotic, and enterprising citizens who were, from the commencement, willing to risk their lives and fortune for the cause of human rights. That statement, coming from someone whose family had been part of the Mayflower, meant so much more. Serving in the Continental Congress, he was the chairman of the Committee for the Manufacture of Arms, and there he cajoled people to produce more for the effort. I fear we may become slaves, Treat Payne said, because we are not industrious to be free. After signing his name, he returned to Massachusetts, back to his state at the end of December 1776, and was Speaker of the Massachusetts House. Later became the Attorney General of the state. He supervised the condemnation of Loyalist estates, prosecuted the insurgents of Say's Rebellion, participated in the Commonwealth's Constitutional Convention. He was appointed as an Associate Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court and served for 14 years. Payne was an avid reader. He was always looking for the best books. When a lawyer friend died in 1760, Payne wanted his out-of-print law books. When his friend Gawain Brown was heading to London in 1758, Payne leafed through a bookseller's catalog and made a shopping list to take with him. Payne wrote to Boston bookseller Jeremiah Condy after Condy sold for London in 1760, hoping that he would locate in obscure titles. Numerous requests fill his papers and letters, always seeking out books. Though not the longest-lived signer, he was one of them. He died at the age of 83 in 1814. A supporter of John Adams, he was pleased that the nation was able to end any intrigue, stand up to the European nation of France, stand up for its own rights. The struggle between liberty and despotism, government and anarchy, religion and atheism has been gloriously decided. France has been foiled, Robert Treat Payne said. And America is free. In 1813, the vice president of the United States left his house and entered a carriage so that he could assume his constitutional duty of presiding over the Senate. He entered the carriage, but then, simply not feeling well enough, 
he asked that he be brought back to bed. He was not able to make that trip. The Vice President of the United States, Elbridge Gerry, diplomat, governor, Republican, and signer of the Declaration, passed away. Some of the founders of the United States have lent their names to great inventions, doctrines, accomplishments, even the capital of the United States of America. For Elbridge Gerry, his name is today associated with a political trick. The act of drawing representative district lines in a way that ensures your opponents will get less seats and you more. Not only has he lost his political dignity in history, but Gary lost the hard G in his name, and gerrymandering is now an international turn for a crime against democracy. Yet it is certainly fair to say that although he signed that bill in Massachusetts for redistricting, Gary did not create this maneuver, and so much of it has occurred since Gary's time that you really can't lay all the blame with him. Gary deserves more than that. Harvard-educated merchant, he was a patriot and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, governor of Massachusetts, the fifth vice president of the United States. Having met him in Continental Congress, John Adams, often a critic of people, was impressed. I found a faithful friend, an ardent, persevering lover of his country, he said about Gary. Soft-spoken, even stuttering at times, he nonetheless impressed some with his logical arguments. Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, said, He cannot boast of the thunder of his voice, but when he speaks, he's assured of a superiority over his opponents. If you are a lover of liberty and freedom, especially when it regards states and individual actions of one party not dominating all of what was a very centralized government and sometimes did need to be, but not overly so, I think. That's how you think you'll like Gary. One of the points he raised at the Constitutional Convention was the idea of the president taking an oath to uphold the laws of the states. He felt that was important. Gary didn't sign the Constitution, as we said before, but he made enhancements and led some of the Republican efforts. Gary participated along with Adams on some of the important committees, especially the appropriation of arms for the revolution. But as the revolution drew to a close, he went back to his home state of Massachusetts. And there, Gary's battle was with another signer of the declaration. He felt that John Hancock, governor of Massachusetts, was acquiring too much power in the new state due to his fame as a revolutionary's influence and his wealth. His practice of trading patronage jobs particularly justices of the peace, was, according to Gary, comparable to the actions of the royal governors they had fought against. This he said during his battles with Hancock, the then political boss of Massachusetts. The vigilant enemies of free government have a plan to hunt down those who remain committed to Republican principles. They've attacked us in detail and attacked myself, Sam Adams, and James Warren in our public confidence. Is this, my friend, to be the operation of free government? which our labors will produce? Yet no one, it seemed, could stop Hancock, though Gary organized and tried. He only succeeded in diminishing his own political career. Indeed, after the revolution, Abigail Adams would write to him, saying, I was looking for your names on the list of state offices and could not find it. I was so surprised. We did represent Massachusetts in the new Confederation Congress in New York City. No one, it seemed, could stop Hancock. In his first election, he got 95% of the vote against the Conservative Party of James Bowden. 
In the second election, 75%. A French observer reporting back to the royal government about American politics said, Hancock is the king of the rabble. His credit with the masses is great. Even fellow signer Sam Adams wasn't strong enough to oppose him when he did. Hancock forgetting that both he and Adams were fellow patriots, that both of them were exempted from the general amnesty offered to the signers by British generals. They were captured, they would be hanged. Hancock, nonetheless, through surrogates, attacked Samuel Adams, saying he was part of a known British party. Samuel Adams, part of a British party. The rumors were enough to kill his chances. Gary kept organizing and opposing the Wizard of Salem and his practices. Gary was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He participated in the debates fully, but in the end, he did not sign the Constitution. It was, he said, very painful for him. The Constitution provided too little security for the liberty of the people, he said. He hinted there were not enough representatives in the House. The Congress had powers that were ambiguous, and the President was too powerful and his powers were blended with that of the people. The Senate could treat with other nations with just two-thirds of a quorum, binding treaties, and there was no Bill of Rights. In this, he drew a debate from Oliver Ellsworth, who wrote as a landholder in the newspapers. Over his request for more representation, Ellsworth wrote, We can't have every town represented. It would be a 3,000-member Congress. The irony is that Gary... Although he was arguing for more representation for the people, would become associated in history with representation's worst maneuver. Gary was no man of street politics. He was a wealthy person. He was owner of federal securities. He was a shareholder in the Ohio Company, owner of lots of lands on the Muskegon River. Some issues he argued for a large federal government, particularly government that could protect the value of securities which he owned, argued for the creation of a navy to protect merchant shipping trade. But yet, he was a Democrat, supporter of Jefferson, a supporter of the rights of the people to have elections. He worried about the influence of groups like Washington's Friends, the Society of Cincinnati. Would they create a cabal that would effectively run the country? He was a supporter of the party of Jefferson, but he was not a partisan. He was still good friends with John Adams. And when President John Adams needed a representative to go to France who would be open to peace, not the ultra-federalist that Hamilton had given to Adams' administration, one at war with France, somebody who would be open if there was a peace offering to be had, he sent Gary. Thus, in 1800, running for governor of Massachusetts, Gary called himself a federal Republican. Gary was advertised as the inflexible patriot of 75, the friend of Adams, opposed to a standing army, appealing to all people, even in league with Hancock, forgetting his opposition to the late Hancock. He lost the 1800 election, but if you at first you don't succeed, try, try again, he won in 1810. An engraving is a series of cuts made into a copper plate with a very sharp knife, usually aided by a good eye, perhaps helped by a good strong lens. Engravers would develop pictures that would pop off the page and help newspapers sell more copies. Engravers were practiced professionals and careful about their secrets. One of them was Elkanah Tisdale, known for his ability to cross-etch and to make images in a three-dimensional way. Readers of the Gazette during Gary's governorship would have seen a large serpent with a monstrous head and clawed feet hugging 
some of the counties of Massachusetts. Well, Tisdale had set his etching to expose a dirty political trick. The Republicans in Massachusetts, controlling the state at this time, had redistricted the state and carved out a district that ringed around the numerous Federalist strongholds north of Boston in order to have one district from Salisbury to Haverhill to Marblehead, a ring that looked unnatural, not like one community. And in the artist etching, it was a serpent. The caption read, A new species of monster has appeared in the recent elections. The Gerrymander. He was an anti-Federalist, and in Massachusetts, a leader of what you would see as the beginning of the Republican or Democratic Party. He also insisted on religious tolerance, which, in a state such as Massachusetts, the majority were Congregationalists. You still had Baptists and others. Clergy tended to support Federalists, leading him to shoot his rhetorical warning shot across the bow as a governor. It is a happy circumstance and does great honor to our clergy that there exists among them a speech, that there exists among them a spirit of tolerance. They advance in the road of piety, which is always strewn with flowers. Shall they enter the path of politics, they will retreat from lacerations, from briars and thorns, which shall meet them at every step. Failing in his re-election as governor of Massachusetts, he was selected by James Madison as his vice presidential candidate. Then, as is now, presidential candidates like to balance regionally, and Gary was chosen with the hope of the ticket winning this northern state. That did not happen, but the ticket won enough southern states and won Pennsylvania, which was enough to put Madison in the presidency and Gary in the vice presidency and presidency of the Senate that the office describes. Upon his death, his good friend John Adams wrote to his new pen pal, Jefferson, that another signer had again been lost. While worrying for the destiny of his widow and nine children, he said, Gary is happy in his death. For what horrors has he not escaped in the electioneering campaign of next summer? Nobody more than Adams knew the troubles sometimes with the democracy and politics. Yet with those troubles came a great contribution. And while Gary isn't one of the best-known founding fathers, if you will, at least some of the laws present in the United States government now were a result of his argument. I want to thank you for listening. If you like this program, please give us a positive comment on iTunes. It always helps other people to find the uh, program. I also do a program called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where I discuss current politics and apply history to those events. That's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, or you can find it on iTunes. Thanks for listening.